it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather, and Dave Ahern, to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 65. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to answer some readers' questions. We've gotten some fantastic questions over the last few weeks, and Andrew and I wanted to take a few minutes to go ahead and answer those. I'm going to go ahead and start off with the first one. So bear with me reading this. So I have, hi, Andrew. I stumbled across yours and Dave's podcast of the search for the ultimate truth and knowledge of investing. I have dabbled in investing more gambling with Forex and options with a couple of stocks, not good ones, just losers. The thing I'm finding is there is so much info out there leading you this way and that. So the question I have for you is now that you've been investing for a while and probably still learning along the way, if you had to start again or start your daughter, if she was of age for investing of her own, like Phil Town and his daughter, where would you start and what steps would you suggest? I understand the concepts of value investing. I believe buy a good company for less than what it's worth for a margin of safety and look for good businesses that I can understand. I've just finished listening to the value investor from Graham, but the issue I seem to run into is evaluation of businesses or should I start looking somewhere else? I know you've both put out good info for stocks, but how do you go about finding those? I forgot to say thank you for both of you from probably every new investor for trying to help people realize that there is a way to have money for retirement. Tom Patrick. Well, Tom, you're welcome. This is why we do what we do. We love helping people. And it's a lot of fun to talk about this. And Andrew and I get to geek out on air. <laughs> so uh, let's see. Let me take some of these questions for you. So if I had to start, we've talked a little bit about this, but I'll go back and talk a little bit about this again. If I had to start again or start my daughter uh, when she was of age, uh, like Phil Town and his daughter. If you guys have not checked out, that's invested. Uh, Phil Town and his daughter Danielle talk a lot about investing. Danielle is a newbie, and Phil Town is a uh, value investor and of the like that we talk about. And it's kind of a great interplay between he and his daughter as there is he's trying to teach her all about Wall Street and everything. So it's kind of a it's a cool podcast if you want to check it out. So if I wanted to start Sadie off with investing. I would just basically sit her down and talk about, you know, buying companies, you know, and so many people look at investing as buying a stock as a piece of paper or a ticker symbol on their computer or their iPad or their phone. And I would talk more about what you're actually buying. You're actually buying a piece of the business and go about talking about how the business makes money and teacher the ways of businessman. You know, Phil, I'm sorry, Warren Buffett always says that he's a great investor because he's a great businessman. He talks a lot about, and kind of vice versa, he's a great businessman because he's an investor. And they really go lockstep hand in hand with each other. The more you learn about business and how they operate and how they make money, you become much a better investor because as I've said before, you know, we're buying businesses. So I, I would start with that and learning more about how businesses make money and where their revenue comes from and just learning the ins and outs of the business. And I'm not necessarily talking about learning how to read a 10K. That I think would be overwhelming and kind of boring. And I think that would put people off. But if you really start off with, you know, looking at things that you go and buy on a regular basis, like Starbucks and have a conversation about, 
you know, how the store makes money and where they get their customers from and where do they buy their coffee from and the cups and how much do they pay their employees and you know, all this different stuff they can go into it. It could be an you know, hours long conversation. And I think once you really start to delve into those kinds of aspects, you'll really start to get a better aspect and a better feel for what really goes on with each business. And it doesn't have to be Starbucks. It could be Verizon. It could be, you know, your local tire company. It could be McDonald's. It could be the other restaurant that you go to. It just, it could be anything, but I think really kind of delving into the basics of business and cash flows and really how a business handles all those things, all that stuff will really make you a much, much better investment. Uh, The next question that he asked is looking for good businesses and kind of, you know, is it the valuations or should he look somewhere else? And when you're really talking about value investing, you're really talking about the art of valuation. And Andrew and I talk a lot about numbers and where you get those numbers and how you find answers for all those things. But the really the thing is it's an art. And yes, you know, using formulas and using numbers, that's really the easy part. The art of it comes into the mental state of what you're doing and having the fortitude to believe in your decisions. And so when you sit down and you think, okay, I'm going to buy company A for these reasons, you know, a great practice to to do that is to write it down, is to either, you know, have a a notepad that you can write all your ideas on or whether it's you have a Google Docs or a Microsoft Word doc or whatever it is you want to do and write down your idea of why you wanted to buy company A. And then whenever you start to notice that things are maybe going a little south with the company, not necessarily that the operations are going bad, but let's say for whatever reason it's fallen out of favor in the stock market and the, the price starts to go down, you can go back and look at the, those notes and go, okay, is the reason I bought the company still valid? Is it still a good company? Are they still making money? Are they still doing the same things that they were doing before that brought them success? If you can answer all those questions in a positive, then it's still a great investment. But if it's not, then that's maybe when you want to start thinking about maybe getting out of the investment. So those are some of the things that you can look at. And it really kind of comes down to your your uh, state of mind and looking at your valuations and, and re-evaluating them every year. And, you know, you only have to do it every quarter, every six months, every year. It's not something you have to follow every single day. You know, I'm a Ender and I are big baseball geeks. And yes, I love looking at stats every single day, but you don't have to do that for the stock market. And if it's a matter of fact, it's a lot of times better if you don't, because then you won't drive yourself crazy. And I think the last question is, how do we go about finding good info on stocks or how do you go about finding good companies? Well, it's about, all about turning over rocks, you know, is looking in as many different places as you possibly can. I have this routine that I started a long time ago using uh, the metrics that I got from Andrew's book, you know, screening for stocks. And I do it every week. And, you know, that's one way that I go about doing it. You know, there's also, you know, the different podcasts that I listen to, the different uh, e-letters that I get, Andrew's e-letter, you know, he has great ideas as well. You know, so you can get ideas from anywhere. You drive down the street and you look at something, you see, hmm, I wonder what that's all about. And you can find out if they're publicly traded. And if they are, then that could be a possibility for an investment. So there's all kinds of different ways that you can go about trying to find these things. And it's not just one set specific way. Um, Manish Parai talks a lot about looking at companies that are on their 52-week low and seeing who's at that number or below. And there's there's lists that you can screen for for those. And you can find those ideas. And those are that's a great way to find companies that are on the down and out in the stock market. And some of those are going to be passes. They're going to be hard passes because they're losing money, they're doing poorly, and there's a reason why the stock is price is really low. But you could find some gems in there as well, too. You could find you know, a company like uh, Southwest Airlines, for example, recently was came up in one of my screeners about a year or so ago. And I noticed that he bought the company but not too long after that because it was out of favor in the in Wall Street. It doesn't mean that all the metrics, it doesn't pay a dividend. So that's why I passed on it. But it, it you know, you can find different different ideas in different ways. So those are, I guess, my answers for all those things. And I hope that helps answer your question, Tom. I know Andrew had some thoughts on this as well. I mean, you pretty much covered it, but uh, I would just say, because uh, this is something I recently stumbled across, and I think it's a great resource. We haven't talked about it before on the podcast. Uh, this is a book called The Little Book of Value Investing. It's by Christopher H. Brown. So if I, were, if I had to start all over again 
if I had to give myself one book in a previous life or whatever, that's the book I would probably do. It has a lot of what the intelligent investor had um, in a much more bite size. I wouldn't say it's like an all encompassing thing. I think the intelligent investor for Benjamin Graham is much better for that, but I think it's a good entry point and a good kind of cliff notes on everything about value investing really. And, and it's a great place to start. And then the only other thing I would say, uh, uh, I love the idea of the 52 week lows for stock ideas. And Dave also mentioned the stock screener. So, we cover that extensively. We covered a whole episode on that. So that's episode 22 where we talked about uh, finding a reliable stock screener. And, you know, uh, just checking out our archives in general. I know we covered a lot of stuff on valuation and there's a lot. It's a never ending topic, um, but it's something you always want to try to learn more and more about. And that's def- definitely something that we've tried to cover and we'll continue to try to cover, but it's not something that uh, you can really cliff notes if that makes sense. So the next question is actually um, two separate questions, but they're asking very similar things. So I'll read them both and then answer. First one's from Dan. She says, Andrew, I know that you have discussed not putting stop losses on our stock picks. I understand that we are investing in value companies and that they should be able to withstand a drop in the market. What if there is a large market correction? Are we still better off not putting the trailing stop loss on our picks at 25%, just curious. And then um, the second email is, Hi, Andrew, thanks for answering my email. I only invest in Indian stocks. I read in your blog that whenever a stock drops by 25%, we need to exit from the stock. Does this rule apply to investors who buy the stock for long-term? Five or years. Uh, Sorry, more than five years. If your answer is yes, then please explain the reason for it because a fundamentally strong stock can drop in price by 25%, before it makes a move on the upside. Please clarify. And he says, uh, thank you for selflessly sharing your knowledge and experience. Thanks, Aaron. So this is a little bit difficult for me to talk about in in a sense. So this is one of those topics I know we've talked about a lot in the past uh, about trailing stop losses. And it's something that as I've learned more, gained more experience you know, try to research as much as I can and just in general pick up as much. You know, you want to get a lot, a big variety of ideas in the stock market and with investing and your investing strategies. And so everybody's going to kind of have a strong opinion on everything. Uh, when it comes to trailing stops, uh, there are definitely good resources out there that recommend trailing stops. Uh, I certainly followed it for quite a while uh, up until recently. So, one of the things that I realized when it comes to guys like Warren Buffett, um, Charlie Munger, the, the, the guys who really buy stocks in the way that Dave and I talk about on the podcast, where we're talking about getting in part ownership of a business. Uh, there's a lot of value investing out there that, frankly, is geared towards um, a lot of short-term buys. And if you think about it, that actually conflicts with a lot of the stuff we talk about with dividend reinvestment, because instead of, you know, trying to just buy a stock when it's undervalued, let the stock appreciate to where it's at its true value and then liquidating the, the position, uh, having a long-term business kind of owner mindset says that getting that intrinsic value payback is more like a added bonus. It's a cherry on top. But what we really want is the long-term growth. So I did use trailing stops for a while. Uh, I've since continue, discontinued doing that. If you remember before, I had my portfolio separated into two separate. So I always had the kind of business-minded, business owner portion of the portfolio. That was the dividend fortresses. And I had the what I call regular positions. And those are ones that I attached to a trailing stop. I started to realize, and this is something, it might not necessarily be true for everybody, especially if you're structuring your portfolio on this kind of dual-headed approach. But I started to realize that um, the value trap indicator that I use tends to self-select itself out of a lot of high-growth stocks. And so one of the big reasons why trailing stops work so effectively and 
the place I got that idea from, uh, there are some value investors who use it, but there's also, it's a huge, huge tactic used in technical analysis. Guys who follow the trend and, and they, they, they buy on the trend and then they could be in and out of a position in, in a day, a week, a month, or it could be years, you know, five, 10 years. Depends on how the price is moving. And so what I realize is that a lot of those position, uh, a lot of those strategies really depend on having these super high 20 positions. The way that they find success is, is they pick one big grand winner and then they have like 19, they could have 19 losers, but because they have a trailing stop attached, they're really minimizing that downside. And then the one big winner pays for all of the losses, all the, all the short little cuts, if you will, and, uh, and also provides a nice profit. Now, buying that huge gainer often means buying at a big valuation. And uh, obviously, that's something that uh, value investors tend to stay away from. It's something that I stay away from with the value chart indicator. You know, so, so I had this idea that I would kind of mix the two, and, and it did work for a time. But when you, when you start to look at what the greats do when it comes to portfolio turnover, guys like Buffett and Munger, they, they turn over their positions maybe, I think it was like a 10% turnover per year. So I'll, I'll give you some context, right? Uh, the average investor tends to have a turnover ratio of about 80%. The average fund manager is at like 100% and Buffett and Munger are at like 10%. So I realized, so to explain that real quick, um, that means if you have a turnover ratio of 100%, that means uh, you're buying. So if you're buying 12 stocks, like like we like to talk about dollar cost averaging, buying 12 stocks uh, a year, then that means you're buying and selling each of those once per year. Uh, one of 10% would mean maybe you're buying, you know, you, you, you have 10 buys in the year and you have one sell in the year. That's a turnover, that's a turnover of 10%. And so as we all know, the fund managers tend to underperform. The average investor tends to underperform and Buffett and Munger <laughs> have definitely outperformed it in a very fantastic way. Uh, I, I found when I was using trailing stops, I was separating the portfolio into two different portions that I had a turnover ratio of about 50%. So I was somewhere in the middle, but it was still something where I realized, like what Iran was saying, uh, I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, you know, he says there could be uh, a drop in price by more than 25% before it makes the move on the upside. And that's exactly what I saw as well. So uh, I saw that for multiple positions. And so that kind of explains why I have moved away from the trailing stop loss um and it's just one of those things you're gonna have to evaluate for yourself and look you know are are you buying the sort the sorts of stocks where you're gonna get basically are you buying the stocks that will will do well with a trailing stop loss or are you buying the type of stocks that might need a longer time period might need to go under uh, more potential downside moves in order to to see an upside in the future. And so that's something to kind of try to figure out for yourself, look at the types of stocks you're buying and apply it to your strategy. Hey, you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. So we're going to split up this next question into two parts. Uh, I wanted to tackle the first part here. So we have a question from Duncan, Duncan D. He says, uh, hi, Andrew. Thanks for doing the podcast with Dave. It has been a great learning tool for me. My 2018 year goal was to be financially responsible, and you have both been a great help. I have a couple of questions. The first part, fractional shares and dividends. I've recently got my first set of dividends, which I have reinvested in my IRA. How do these work on future dividends? Do fractional shares also give out dividends too? For example, I have a one share in a company that has a yield of 10%. I reinvest and now I have 1.1 shares. 
If everything remains exactly the same next dividend X date, how many shares will I have? 1.2 or 1.2.1? So I'll answer the question and then give you exactly how it works for me. So if you were doing a uh, getting a dividend from a fractional share, it would mean that you would have... So for his example, he says a yield of 10%, right? So when you reinvest a yield of 10%, you're going to get... Let's say the stock's at ten dollars. You re you have a yield of ten percent. That's one dollar. So when you reinvest, now he has one point one shares. So you're going to get a dividend from not only that one share, but the point one share. And so he asks, we get one point two shares or one point two one. You'll have one point two one. And I've seen this happen. I'm imagining it's going to depend on your broker, but I'll give you a specific example. So I have a stock, and I'm not going to give away the ticker because this is one that was just a recent. Uh, recommendation, and it's still at a good value right now. But it's a exactly a stock where I had exactly one share. This is in the the e leather real money portfolio, hundred fifty dollars a month. Was only able to buy one share. Now the dividend for that uh, for twenty eighteen. If you look at their dividend history, the dividend was supposed to pay out thirty seven cents per share. But this is a stock I've held um, for at least a year, I think maybe two years. So so I had some fractional shares added on. So when I got dividends this year for 2018, instead of getting those 37 cents that they reported, I actually got 38 cents uh, each time they pay that dividend. So obviously, it <laughs> uh, doesn't sound like a lot, right? But as we always talk about over and over again, when it comes to compound interest, those fractional shares will add up over time. And you know, in this... In this one case we're talking about, we're talking about uh, a one share thing, but this all, if, if you're having it across all your positions and you're starting to invest hundreds of dollars and becomes thousands of dollars and becomes tens of thousands of dollars, then you'll really see huge uh, just ballooning of, of compound interest from the fractional shares in addition to the reinvested shares. And so that's where the magic comes in. So yes, absolutely. I think you should be getting uh, dividends from your fractional shares. If you're not, change your broker to Ally like I have. And I know that they do it for the stocks I have. Uh, it won't always round, right? It's going to depend on what the dividend is, like if it's a company with a small dividend yield or you know, depending on uh, what number of shares you have, all these sorts of things, right? What, how big your position size is. But from what I've seen, Ally does do it. So if that's something you're interested in and your broker's not, then um, check that out. And Dave, I'll let you take the second half of this because I feel like I've been talking a lot. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. 
It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform. Our life gets in the way. This is where hymns can help. With their convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward conversations, just a simple, direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online, no uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site, and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free, no insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMSS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash investing. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. HIMSS.com slash investing. Hard mints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Okay. <laughs> no problem. All right. So the second part of the question is the emergency fund slash safety net. Pretty much everywhere... Uh, everyone recommends saving up a good safety net before investing, just so you're prepared if something bad happens. Would you recommend investing this safety net at all or keeping it liquid in a high interest savings account, for example? I've had conflicting advice on the subject and I'm interested in what both of you would recommend. I actually hadn't even heard of IRAs before listening to your podcast. I was really financially illiterate. Thanks for the talk about them and getting me started with them. Being an Aussie expat living in the U.S., the single biggest appeal for me for a Roth IRA, which seems understated everywhere, is the lower slash no penalty for early withdrawals. For someone who may not be living in the USA in 10 years time, visa depending, the ability to access this money is a huge advantage for me. Thanks again for your great podcast, Duncan. All right. So let's tackle this emergency fund slash safety net. So here are my thoughts or let me re. I guess, tell you what I have done. So I have, I've done two things. One is I have a savings account. So I bank with Ally and uh, Ally Bank. And as you guys all know, I used to work for Wells Fargo. And when I left the bank, I left uh, the bank. So I bank with Ally. And part of the reason why I do that is because their savings account uh, interest rate has just gone up to 1.62%, which may not like sound like huge, but for somebody like me who is looking for any extra money that I can make, it's a lot of money. And considering when I was working with uh, Wells, they were paying, you know, wait for it, 0.03% for a savings account. So it's just, you know, not even pennies uh, for the money that you could make, just putrid. So I did that. So I, I have a, um, every, paycheck, I have $50 go into my savings account every single month. And I've been doing that for years. And I do that because of this very reason. I'm trying to save up an emergency fund so that I have a backup if a tire blade, you know, blows out, which happened to me recently. And, or if something goes wrong on the car, which happened to my wife's car just recently. And so instead of having to dip into, you know, my investment money, I use that to 
pay for those things. And so I think that's an absolutely fantastic way to do it is to find the highest yield savings account that you can possibly find and put money into it. Now, there's another train of thought, and this is something that I experimented with, and it worked out well for me, but I think you would probably want to talk to an accountant to make sure that you could minimize the tax effect on this. I opened an account with uh, Betterment, who is an online investor, and they have kind of easy plans that you can use to, uh, you know, basically... It's like kind of like a 401k. You have all kinds of different ETFs and mutual funds that you can invest in, and they have different portfolios to base, based on your risk um, profile, and you can invest money in that, and it's free if you invest $100 a month. So they won't charge you any fees, and there's no uh, risk involved. I mean, there's risk involved because you're investing the money. So I did that for about two years, and it didn't do so great the first year, the second, the second year, it actually did a lot better. And I ended up taking all the money out because I just thought maybe this was maybe not the best way to do this. And it worked out. Okay. I think it, over the course of two years, I made $60, which is not huge return by any stretch of the imagination, but it was 60 more bucks than I would have had it if I had left it at Wells Fargo. So, you know, all in all, it was a good experiment and it was good. It was a good situation. But one of the things why I st- took it out was because you're very questioned about the liquid part of it. I personally would keep it in a savings account so that it is liquid and it's safe, it's secure. Uh, The problem with investing it is if, let's say that you have $5,000 in an account and something comes up and you desperately need that $5,000, if the stock market takes a hit two weeks before you really need that money and it drops down to $3,800, you're in a bad spot. So if you're in a savings account, then you can access that money at any time with no uh, possible loss of your funds because they're FDIC insured. Uh, I've heard people talk about CDs. I'm not a fan of CDs because, yes, there is a penalty for withdrawing the money from a CD. Depending on what where you bank, it can be upwards of 25% of the balance. It could also be whatever interest you've earned over the course of the year or whatever cycle it is, depending on how long the CD is. And typically in most brick and mortar banks right now, the interest rates would be pretty pathetic. So it would not really be worth the tying up of your funds for doing something like that. And you also can't contribute to it as a, on an ongoing basis as well. So if you're going to be doing it on a regular basis, like I'm doing and like I would suggest you do, remember one of our rules in our finance class was paying yourself first. And this is part of how I do it. Part of it is I save you know, a little bit of money to go towards a fund, which I've been doing for a while. And then also part of it is you using for my investing, which is a bigger chunk of money. So, you know, those are the two ways that I would recommend doing it. I'd be curious to see what Andrew thinks about that. No, I'm right there with you a hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, that's easy. Okay. All right. So next question I will take a stab at. So, hi, Andrew. Just a quick question on dollar cost averaging. Can you buy a portion of a share, say one third of a share? If, for example, you decide to invest $500 a month and you want to buy into a company that's trading at $1,500 for ease of math, do you need to wait until you have $1,500 ready to invest? Or can you, in fact, buy $500 worth of company each month for three months? Similarly, if a share is trading at $200, can you buy 2.5 shares for your $500 monthly investment, or do you have to buy whole shares? Thanks, Stephen. In a word, easy answer. You have to buy full shares. It doesn't allow you to buy fractional shares. Uh, it's a little frustrating. Yes, I know. Uh, I know that when I was using uh, TradeKing, it did allow me to do that, but I think Ally Invest does not allow you to do that. So unfortunately, you have to buy whole shares. So if you're looking to buy, let's say Amazon at $1,500 a month or $15, $100 a share, you're going to have to save up for it to buy that one share. So that's a quick and easy answer. The next two questions are dealing with the value chart indicator. So obviously, um, I'll answer those. Uh, hi, Andrew. Just wondering if I can use a VTI for small cap slash younger companies. I'm trying to diversify. Would you recommend buying the premium package VTI so that I can use it and input data for all shares? 
Can I use the VTI with ETFs or index funds? Regards, Andrew B. So yes, you can absolutely use it for small cap companies. Um, I tend to recommend trying to get a company that has a market cap of at least $2 billion or more. Um, once you get below that, you start to run into risks where a company could be so small that one little thing can really throw things off. You know, when a company has $2 billion in market cap, it tends to be a little bit more secure in just the business world in general, kind of in where it falls in the marketplace and its industry, those sorts of things. I have dipped into and recommended some that have been in the kind of one, $1.5 billion range, but I've never gone below $1 billion for sure. Uh, and kind of recommend that people who are trying to use VTI use that as well. I did do like a YouTube video when I was talking about micro cap stocks. And I talked about one of the stocks I bought uh, just kind of as like a fun money thing that just turned out really, really poorly. And uh, it being such a small size had a lot to do with that. Uh, the second part he kind of asked, uh, what about younger companies? So the thing with the value chart indicator is you need five years of earnings data in order to get a value return and, and get a score for the value chart indicator. So I did that intentionally. Uh, when I look at growth, I want to look at not just year over year growth, but I like to look at three year averages. Uh, and I like to see longer track records. And so that's why I do the at least five years of earnings data just goes back to, you know, sometimes it's just boring and, and consistent, you know, consistent track record is, is just so underappreciated in the market. And it's really a great way to go and, and not saying it's a guarantee. Nothing's a guarantee, but it's a great way to invest. Buffett has preached it and done it for decades. And it's kind of like Newton's law, you know, things in motion tend to stay in motion. Businesses that have consistent results tend to continue to get consistent results. It just makes sense. And, and the data has proven that the last part of his question, can you use the VTI with ETFs or index funds? Um, you cannot. So it has to be an individual stock. It has to be used on a business because you need financial data. You need to know a business's earnings, whether they're sales, whether it was their cash, and so you don't get that data with ETF or index fund. Um, so it only works for individual stocks. This next question is from Ian. He says, hi, Andrew. I'm Ian living in the UK. I read your emails with interest. And I've noted that you say that the VTI will work for the LSE. Uh, by the way, side note, guys, that is for the uh, UK exchange. I think it's called the London Stock Exchange. So he says, I'd like to know how the VTI works for a stock that pays no dividend. I realize that many people say not to buy this type of stock, but some big players like Amazon have given me some great returns. So this was actually a topic that got brought up in the um, VTI secret Facebook group that we have, which uh, you get added to once you become a VTI client. But basically, the the gist of it was, yes, you can use... So for one, like when when a stock doesn't pay a dividend... The VTI was designed to automatically not score the VTI as a strong buy. Like it, it's mathematically impossible for a stock to to be a strong buy if it doesn't pay a dividend, and that you know obviously was intentional because I have a zero tolerance policy of a stock needs to pay a dividend. We've talked about that countless times uh, in a lot of our discussions on dividend reinvestment and drip. Uh, what we did, uh, kind of come up with in the group, what, what I showed is you can run a hypothetical, uh, there's a way, and I showed, I like uploaded a spreadsheet with an example of how you can run a VTI on a stock that pays no dividend and just kind of ignore the dividend portion. So you're essentially running a VTI on the six out of the seven categories that I use. So might be helpful for you. I, you know, obviously I'm not going to say I recommend buying stocks that way, but if it's something you want to do, yes, it is possible that you can use it. Uh, on a stock that pays no dividend, you just have to use the workaround that we discuss in the Facebook group. And that's really all I got to say about that. Did you want to take the last one, Dave? Yes, sir. All right. So the last one. 
Andrew, I was going over your October podcast on buying Tesla stock. Do you still feel the same now? No assets, negative earnings, losing money on every car manufactured. The bubble will inevitably pop, operating on investors' money. Thank you. In a word, yes. Are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, yeah, our our thoughts, my thoughts on Tesla have not changed one iota. So I've been reading a lot about this and not intentionally going out trying to find information about Tesla. I'm not obsessed about it. It just happens that a lot of the people that I read and follow on a daily, weekly, monthly basis have been writing a lot about the company lately. And it's just been in the news a lot and not for good reasons. And one of the big things that Warren Buffett talks a lot about when he talks about management is he's he's always looking for companies that are invest that are looking out for the shareholders' best interests, and I would argue that uh, Mr. Tusk is not that ilk. And I'll just give you a few examples of some things recently that have come up that would indicate that it's all about him. It's not necessarily about the company and the car. And the reason why I say that is because. Nobody can argue that he's not a brilliant man, and I will certainly say that he's a brilliant man, but it's all about him. It's all about the publicity that he gathers about Elon Musk. It's not about Tesla. It's not about the people working at the company. It's not about the cars or the people that buy the cars, and there's just so many things wrong with what's going on with the company, and the fact that the the price of the company has been driven up so much is just a stark realization and illustration of how sometimes the stock market can be a really screwy place because there is no place on earth in the world that a company that is failing as miserably as this company is failing and producing the one thing that they have to do is which is make a freaking car they suck at it do they make great cars probably if you could get your hands on one and I'll just throw out a story that I, I read recently. So one of the guys that I follow, uh, I've talked about him before. His name is Vitaly Kent Senelson. And he's a, a, a fund manager that he writes a great blog called The Contrarian Edge. And he's a great writer, very, very smart guy. He's written a lot of great books. And he recently, he lives in Denver, Colorado. He recently went to a Tesla dealership because he was interested in buying one of the entry-level vehicles. He wanted to drop about 50,000 bucks. And that's what he said in his, in his, his, uh, letter. He wanted to, he, he wanted to go in and buy a car. So he went in there. They had no cars on the show floor for him to test drive, to look at, to see, to sit in, to feel nothing, none of them. All they had were the really expensive ones, which he had zero interest in. So then he tried talking to the gentleman, you know, the guys that work there about, the cars, they knew nothing about them. Nothing, not a zip zilch. So now he's like, okay, well, can you at least like show me pictures of it? Cause he's, he, he wants to at least look at it. I mean, here's somebody willing to drop 50,000 K. He's probably got cash on him to buy the car. And they go to the Tesla website. He can't find, they can't find pictures of the car. I mean, this is how screwed up and incompetent the company is on so many different levels of things that they can't even show him a picture of the car he has to go to like Carfax to find the thing on his own because the poor guy that he's working with at the dealership had no idea what he was doing. And it's just, it's just a comedy of errors along the way. So imagine going into Ford and wanting to buy a car and not having one on the dealership. That ain't going to happen. You go to GM, you go to Chrysler, you go to BMW, you go to Volvo. I mean, if, you know, you can list any of them. That's not going to happen. But with Tesla, not a surprise. So then you got, so you got that whole kind of charade of things going on. And of course, he got a lot of negative comments about his post because people were bat, you know, saying he was bashing Tesla. He wasn't trying to bash Tesla. He wanted to buy the car. He wanted to spend money to do it. And they didn't even have a car on the lot to show to people to be able to buy. That's just how messed up it is. Now, I've talked before about how you have to actually kind of buy the cars is, you know, I'm using air quotes here as I talk. You have to, I had a, I had a customer come into Wells one day, wanted to buy a Tesla. It was going to cost them $100,000. They wanted to 
loan they wanted us the bank to loan him money to buy this car now this deal was above my borrowing limit so i he had to go work with a, a different banker that had a higher limit than i did and it was just kind of a comical whole situation because as we dig dug more into what this guy was trying to do he wanted to buy a tesla which is great he wanted to drop a hundred thousand dollars okay fine but here's the kicker he was gonna have to wait three or more years to get the car so he's gonna have to start paying on the loan today but he wasn't going to get the car for at least three years, if not longer, before he could drive the thing. So he was going to buy, get a you know a five or six year loan, which is the max that we would pay. So he would almost have the car paid off before he would get the thing in his hands and he could drive it. I mean, talk about a joke. I mean, who who would do that? So you know, I've read recently that their subscription rates, if you would call it, have been falling dramatically because they've gotten so far behind. And, you know, in producing the cars now, there's been all this stuff on the Internet and the Twitterverse and everything about they uh, one of their plants. They actually built a tent to produce the cars because they didn't have enough room in the plant to produce the cars quick enough. And so they had a very unsafe work environment. People actually lost limbs working in the plant because they were using forklift drivers instead of. Uh, assembly line and they're using forklift drivers to drive the parts from different parts of the tent to get the cars made now i suppose you could give them points for ingenuity but it was really unsafe i mean if you're losing an arm while you're at work because you're working in an unsafe environment that's just that's just terrible but so there's just a litany of things going along with this now then of course there was you know the famous you know investor call you know, every quarter, uh, analysts get together and talk to CEOs, presidents of the companies that they follow. So these are people that are their job is to write about Tesla. And for the most part, most of these people are pro the company. They're looking to find good things to talk about the company so that they can write, you know, with an angle to sell the company. That's, you know, sell side analysts. That's what their job is to do or is to you know try to find companies that are good. So anyway, so these so this most recent call uh, during the call, uh, Elon Musk got so upset with one of the gentleman's answers that he called him boring and he started insulting him and he basically ended the call you know early without taking any more questions. I mean, it, it's just an absolute joke, and it's you know again, it's all about him and. I took that as, you know, yes, it was a joke and yes, it was kind of irresponsible for him to behave that way. It's, it's childish. I mean, the guy was asking him a, a hard question. He was asking him, you know, about cash flow and how they're going to get through this. And because, you know, as we've talked about in the past and as, you know, the gentleman mentioned in the email, they're hemorrhaging money and you can only do that for so long and things will catch up. And I think that, and this is just my speculation, this is just me talking out of the air is I think that he's feeling the pressure now that there's so much negativity about the company out there, people trying to short the company and, you know, he's making all these bold claims about all this crazy stuff. And I think it's because the pressure is getting to him. I think it's because he realizes that it's starting to become time to put up or shut up. And I will never say that what he's trying to do is not a good thing. I think electric cars are an amazing thing. And I give him props for really starting the revolution for you know, car makers to go down that path. And they, it's a compliment to him that all these other huge, you know, automakers like Ford and Chrysler and BMW and you name it, Fiat, everybody is trying to produce a, an electric car. Google's trying to make a car. Apple's trying to make a car. Everybody's trying to make an electric car and because they see the promise and they see that this is where it needs to go. But he's just not the guy, right guy to take a company and he's an inventor that's that's his thing is being creative and coming up with crazy ideas and making them happen but running a business eh, it's not his thing and it's obvious just by the way things have happened and whatnot he's obviously in a gifted order because he's been able to raise all this money for all this time to keep the company going and that's really you know the, the you know there's a question about it running on investor money that's really what's keeping it going is people you know, the fanboys, you know, buying into Tesla, buying into Tesla, believing his his message. But 
the proof is in the pudding and the pudding is pretty sour right now. And, you know, I could just go on and on and on about all the different things and I don't want to bore everybody to death, but it, it, it's, you absolutely cannot buy a company that's losing money as long and as badly it is. And it's performing so badly. I mean, it's kind of sad really when people were super, super excited when Tesla actually for one week hit its mark of making 5,000 cars in, in a week. I mean, that's, that's just, it's pathetic and it, it's, it's just sad. And I feel bad for the people that work for the company. They're all busting their butts trying to make it happen. And I get that, but he's over promising and under delivering. And how many times have you guys heard that from CEOs, investors, and whenever it becomes all about the CEO of the company, run, run far, run fast, do not invent a, invest a single cent in it because you will lose the money. Yes, it may go up. It may do great for a short time, maybe another year or two. It may do great. Maybe for the next five years, it could do great, but it will fall. If it does not make money, it will eventually fall. It will happen. Guarantee it. You know, if it turns it around and he makes money, great. You know, egg on my face. I'm the dumb, dumb that didn't buy the company and I was negative about it, but I'm, I'm not wrong and it's, it's, it's going to go south. So anyway, those are my thoughts. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our Q&A for the night. I hope you enjoyed our conversations and hope you got some value out of the answers that we gave. As Andrew said before, if one person takes the time to write in a question, you know there's seven to ten other people out there are thinking the same thing. So please send us your questions. We love to talk about this stuff on air and help you guys in any way that we can. So I hope you guys have a great week. Go ahead and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety, and we'll see you guys next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.